pray for the word this morning. Father, we thank you for the blessing of just being in your presence today. God, we thank you that uh, we've been able to celebrate with Daniel and Joel. And God, we've been able to uh, reflect on our own baptism and our own journey. And God, I pray this morning uh, that your word would fill us today. Uh, God, just as we've been watching people immersed in water, God, that we'd be immersed in your word this morning and that you'd give to us an infilling. God, uh, a word that sustains us as we go forward on the journey through our Christian faith. God, I pray that we have ears to hear, minds to conceive and hearts that want to open up to your word together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says... Amen. Hey, bless you. As I said before, this is week 41 and the final week in our series, The Gospel, Going Global. We've been talking about the importance of going global with the good news and staying local in our community. We call it being global as we share our faith. And today we're going to come to what is Paul's farewell uh, to the church in Ephesus. And today we go to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read today Paul's famous farewell to his friends in Ephesus. And so for that, we're going to have a look at our final video message in this series. Thanks, guys. Paul was nearing the completion of his third missionary journey. Despite warnings, his heart was to return to Jerusalem. Paul retraced his steps around the Aegean Sea to Philippi, where he reconnected with Luke and celebrated the Passover. Then it was on to Troas. From there, they weaved their way through the islands off the coast of Asia Minor to Miletus, where they met with the elders of the Ephesus Church for a final farewell. Paul said, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Acts 20, 22-24 Hurrying to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, Paul and Luke sailed around the southern end of Asia province to Patara, then straight across the Mediterranean to the ports of Tyre, Ptolemais, and Caesarea. From here, at Caesarea, Paul journeyed to Jerusalem one last time. All right, well, I hope you were able to hear that. 
Hey, listen, let me ask you this. If you were to walk out of here today knowing what was in front of you, knowing that the words that you would say to the people around you would be your farewell address, what would you say to those in fellowship here? What would you say to those brothers and sisters you love? Well, I've entitled today's message, Communicating Christian Conduct. We're going to look at Acts 20, verses 16 through to 38 this morning. There's been lots of farewell addresses down throughout history, hasn't there? Farewell is a way to say goodbye. Do you know goodbye is a word that only came into the English language in 1573. It was a shortened version of the phrase, God be with you. You see, back then, uh, communication was scarce transportation unreliable and so if you parted ways with someone there was a fair chance you might never see them again how do you say goodbye we're fairly casual about it these days aren't we see ya check you later most of the goodbyes you get these days are usually by a cell phone in a text message ttfn ta-ta for now But here we've got Paul's final farewell, his final words to his friends. And so in Acts 20, verses 16 and 17, we see the background as he sets the context. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, was part of the Jewish festival that we look back at in Acts chapter 2. But for us as New Testament Christians, we know that Pentecost, the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and the birth of the church. And so, going on, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, young people, the elders are not the old people in the church, okay? It's not the old people. You know, it was a 75-kilometre journey that would have taken two days when he called them to come from Ephesus down to Miletus. Miletus was a harbour town, And so it's there on the steps of the harbour that he actually sort of called this leadership conference where he would share with them his final farewell address. Paul addresses it to leaders. But the reality is every single one of you in this room is a leader. doesn't matter what age and stage you are at. The reality is with our lives we are either leading people towards Christ or we're drawing them away. You know, we're all ministers of the gospel. That's the truth. We all have a role and responsibility in sharing this good news that we've been given. One of the great things about the Christian church is there is no hierarchy. You know, you might see in some churches there's a pope and there's a cardinal and there's a bishop. There's the clergy and then there's the congregation. You know, the Bible tells us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equal before Christ. It's just that all the way through Scripture and into today, God calls leaders out off the pages of history for a particular purpose to serve in his church and in his ministry and mission. So verses 18 and 19. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. 
From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So firstly, in communicating Christian conduct, Paul instructs us to serve with humility. Paul served the Lord by loving the Lord's people. But Paul demonstrated this Christian commitment, didn't he? He demonstrated that it's sometimes tough. There's going to be trials that brought him to tears. What happened to Paul wasn't pleasant. We know that as we read the scriptures uh, over the journey of this series. Has anybody ever made you cry because of your Christian commitment to Jesus Christ? Folks, have you ever noticed, you know, sometimes when you think back, when you take that walk down memory lane, that sometimes our memory ambushes us. Sometimes it brings up bad memories of people that's caused us pain, doesn't it? But you know, the good thing I know about a, a memory is that it can be selective. We actually get to choose whether we select the bad things about people or where we choose the good things about people in our lives. Paul chose the good, didn't he? You know, last year my mum and dad rang me for my birthday. And uh, they were just heaping praise on me like you wouldn't believe, you know. Like I was the greatest son in the world. Oh, Andrew, you know, you've been no trouble at all. And, you know, you're such a blessing and you're such a wonderful son. And I, th I thought they'd rung the wrong son. <laughs> I was a holy terror. I was a terrible kid. I caused them no end of angst. But they had a selective memory. They chose just to remember the good things about me. And I realised then a little bit of dementia helps as well. <laughs> Billy Graham once said this. There is healing power in a selective memory. As humans, we cannot forget our sins and hurts. But through forgiveness, we can choose not to remember them. So Paul chose not to dwell on the painful past that people caused him, but on the love he shared with these leaders. You see, the Bible teaches us that every born-again believer is a minister, a minister of the gospel, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's, that's who I am. It's Andrew Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called only by the grace of God and the giftings of God to be able to lead his church. It's nothing that I am, it's everything that Christ is through me. And then in 1 Peter 2 verse 16, it challenges us then to live as servants of God. That means to incorporate every area of your life in serving the Lord in some way. 1 Peter 5.5 5 gives us the formula for a well-dressed Christian when it says clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. To clothe, there was actually a cloak that a servant wore that actually identified them. A little bit like if you go to a restaurant and you know the waiter by the way that they are dressed. People should be able to identify us by the way that we dress and serve others. I think one of the best uh, verses on humble services, of course, is Philippians uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. <sighs> that always blows my mind, that, but surely that, that, that's got to be obsolete now, doesn't it, that verse? Hey, what? My 
my whole life I've been taught that the most important person here is me. It's countercultural, isn't it, to think that don't think of yourself. Think of others better than you. Paul comes along here and he says, don't think less of yourself. See, a lot of people think in humility, I've got to think less of myself and more of you. No, he's, not, he's, 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 he's just saying, think of yourself less. Jesus Christ died for you. He loves you. You've got infinite value as a child of God. That's security then. It means I don't have to keep thinking about what's in this for me, but what's in it for you. In other words, humility is not devaluing me, it's just valuing you. Have you ever been around great people? Great people make you feel great, don't they? Oh, I love being around so-and-so. I know someone who loves it when someone comes to town because they want to be around them. But little people belittle you, don't they? You know, the relationships that we have, if you don't keep humble in those relationships and think about how you're serving uh, the betterment of that other person, if you're not humble, your relationships will crumble. Augustine captured the importance of humility by saying this, For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second. Humility is the third. Dave Thomas was the uh, founder of uh, Wendy's Restaurants in uh, the United States. And there's a picture of him in the front of a magazine. He's wearing an apron. This is the CEO, the founder of Wendy's Restaurants. He's wearing an apron and he's holding a mop and bucket. And he explained it by saying, I got my MBA at Wendy's. MBA doesn't mean Master of Business Administration. It means I got my mop and bucket attitude. Being a servant requires us to move out of our comfort zone, doesn't it? Remembering Jesus, he moved all the way from heaven to earth, didn't he? In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said this, Your attitude must be like my own. I didn't come here to be served, I came to serve. But listen, my experience is quite often very, very different. Often when you serve people, have you ever noticed, when you start serving people, they'll stand back and let you serve? And the more you do for them, the more they'll expect you to do. In fact, people often expect the opposite of what Jesus taught. I'm here to be served, not to serve. <laughs> Who do you think you are? But God tests our humility every day. Every day, in every way that you act and behave, it's a test. When someone treats you like a servant, how do you react? So firstly, Paul's final words there in conducting ourselves. Conduct yourself in humble service towards one another. Well, next, to communicate uh, Christian conduct, Paul instructs us to speak without hesitation. Hold on. Verse 20 and 21. You know that I have not hesitated. That means shrunk back, not been afraid. Uh, uh, I didn't avoid sharing the tough truths of God's word to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. This is like the public teaching here. But we've also got to have private conversations about the gospel, the good news with people. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only did he minister everywhere, but he ministered to everybody what they must do to be saved. Order here is important. You can't just, I know people who say, yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus. That is not enough. You must first repent. 
To repent is to do a U-turn, to turn away from your old sinful life. You know, there is no pardon without repentance. It's a little bit like if a, if a mass murderer, not mentioning any names, here in Victoria would want to get out of jail, they can't say, well, if I get out of jail, I'll just go and kill again. No, 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 they must repent. Yeah? And that's what we have to do. We have to say, no, no, no. I'm not going to endeavour to sin any more. But in the grace of God, I'm going to look towards my Saviour. Jesus preached it in Mark 1.15, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So reading on, verse 25 and 27. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's a pretty sad word to hear there. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Do you remember in our series before, we've talked about the role and responsibility as Christians today. We have a responsibility, if there's an opportunity, to share the good news with someone that will take them from hell into heaven. You know, if we don't take that opportunity, their blood is on our heads. That's what the Word of God says. But as we've got opportunity, Paul says, I've given everybody the opportunity to respond. For I have not hesitated, he says, to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Let me ask you this. How many sermons do you reckon you've heard in your lifetime? Some of you, I was thinking of young Jack this morning. Been a Christian, what, a year, Jack? Yeah, maybe heard 52 sermons. Probably not the best 52, but 52 some of you have been Christians for 60, 70 years. How many sermons do you think? What do you reckon is the worst sermon you've ever heard? Hey, get back. Hopefully it wasn't from this platform in the last 19 years. What is the best sermon you've ever heard? Was it in a church? Or was it the sermon of someone's life? You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the way that you live and the words that you say. People are reading your life and the impact. Generally, people come to faith through the impact of other people. What's the longest sermon you've ever heard? I know some of you think I'm in contention, but listen to this. Pastor Zach Zander of Mount Dora in Florida, he set the world record for the longest sermon. The 31-year-old pastor of the Cross Church delivered a 53-hour and 18-minute sermon. He had 200 pages of notes, 600 PowerPoint slides. He preached all the way from, Revela from Genesis to Revelation. Boy, oh boy. We just heard about Paul preaching the whole 20. Paul's got nothing on this guy. But what I've discovered is it doesn't matter how short or how long they are. It matters about the impact that they leave on people's lives. Church, your life is a living sermon. Every time you intersect with someone, you've got to ask yourself, what impact am I having for the gospel? Great preacher Charles Spurgeon when training young pastors, one of them asked him, how can I have the same impact you're having? And Spurgeon simply said, simple. Pour gasoline over your body. Light a match and people will come and watch you burn for Jesus. I don't think that's literally. 
Do people say you're on fire for the Lord? Pastor John Wesley, uh, he used to send uh, young men out into the streets uh, to go house to house and out into the, uh, the square, the meeting square, to preach the gospel. And when they came back, he'd ask them two questions. Did anyone get saved and did anyone get mad? And if they answered no, he would say, I don't believe you're called to the ministry and send them home. You see, because when we're actually preaching, repent of your sins, one of two things is going to happen, isn't it? You're either going to be convicted of your sin and get saved or you're going to get incredibly angry that someone would confront you with your sins. But today, you know, quite often in a lot of churches, preachers are a a little bit scared to preach the full, pure gospel of God because they don't want to upset people's delicate disposition. We get into the position where we think, oh, I don't want to lose anybody. I think Paul would say, stuff that we've got a responsibility to confront people with sin so that they know, just as Joel gave that beautiful testimony in the water this morning, that they know that they know that they are saved by Jesus Christ. That's what's so important. You know, Wesley preached his last sermon on February 17, 1791. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Isaiah 55. The next day he took ill. The doctor sent him to bed. He got progressively worse. During the next few days, he kept reciting one of his brother Charles's hymns, I the chief of sinners am, but Jesus died for me. 13 days later, May, uh, March 2nd, 1771, he passed away. His final words, the best of all is God is with us. See, it doesn't matter We don't get to an age where we stop serving and we stop speaking about what God has done for us. Verse 22 to 24. And now, Paul says, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Boy, oh boy, that's some verse, isn't it? Yeah, if you knew what was going to happen, he's going to say in a minute all this other stuff that's happened to him before. But I want you to know that quite often I've discovered that My greatest difficulties in life usually turn out to be God's greatest opportunities. They're usually the things that he uses as I continue to forge forward in faith. So Paul's having a Jesus moment. Luke wrote Acts and he wrote the gospel in chapter 9 verse 51. It says here of Jesus, When the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Paul does now. Jesus knew what was facing him. Paul knows this is not going to work out well, but I'm going to step forward in faith because I trust God with my very life. Let me ask you, does your faith compel you, even when you can't see the way forward, to step forward in faith? Or does quite often fear stop you from moving forward? What dominates your life? What motivates you? At a busy uh, dentist office, uh, there was a guy who always visited the dentist and he was always late. And there's one particular day the receptionist had had enough and he he rang up and he said, oh, listen, I'm going to be 20 minutes late for my appointment. That'll be all right, won't it? She said, sure, but don't worry. We won't have time for the anaesthetic. (laughs) Well, he was there before time. Fear's a funny motivator, isn't it? This guy didn't want to get caught with the pain of life. He wanted to avoid it. Let me ask you this, how do you act 
in the world today, in this temporary world, I think we all act like it's permanent, even though everything here is passing away. We're trying to control and monitor everything. We're trying to uh, make sure we know every step forward before we take it. What's fanning the flames? What's stoking the fire in your heart? I love 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. He says, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. So he was compelled by the love of Christ for him. He was compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit in him to continue to step forward in his faith. Reading on. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I, 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 oh, there you go. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the Greek, it's just two words. There's only two words you need to worry about. Live Christ. That's all it says. God's got your eternal life in hand. Reading on. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task my Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul sees his life as a, as a race yeah, to be completed. Not a, not a sprint, but a, 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 a relay race upon which we continue to pass the baton on. You see, it's so important from here that we pass the baton of God's word on to the next generation. The pure gospel of God's grace. It's the very thing that saves us. It's the very thing that sustains us. It's the thing that spurs us on. We've got to make sure that the next generation know all about the gospel of grace. Otherwise, they'll start to go into legalism. And then the church gets bound in those things. You see, it's grace that separates Christianity from all other World religion. Religion is all about what I have to do. Christianity is all about relationship and what Jesus Christ has done. It's not about you being good enough. It's about the goodness of God to you. Salvation is a gift. It's not something you can earn. If it's something that you think that you can work towards, then it's not a gift because you deserve it. But we don't deserve anything because of our sins. Christ came and died for us. And so we've got to remember to pass on that gospel. Shortly before he died, Paul looked back on his life and he declared in 2 Timothy 4, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. So Paul was determined, wasn't he, not to be disqualified, he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but to continue to be faithful to the very finish of his Christian journey. That's what it requires. What do I say? Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the... Thank you. Bless you. I'm glad somebody remembered that. The word departure, it's a, it's a word for a sailor unmooring a ship. And of course, we know symbolically we're the ship, yeah? It's about a ship that's sailing towards a new harbour. And Jesus is our anchor. He's in heaven. He's the one who is 
pulling us in as we keep stepping forward in faith, safely home to our harbour in heaven. And if anybody fought the good fight and finished the race, it was certainly the Apostle Paul. No temporary trials would hold him back. Paul was going to finish the race. He was striving to the finish line. He's saying to you, it might not be easy. There might be persecution and problems in the way, but stand firm in your Christian conduct until the end. And then thirdly, Paul gives instructions to communicate Christian conduct. Shepherd with honour. Shepherd with honour honor it says in verse 28 keep watch over yourselves so heed your own holiness first yeah you got to do that before you what are we doing point the finger at other people always three pointing back at you and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers it's the Holy Spirit that anoints us for that leadership To be an elder, of course, is the title. An overseer is the task that we are called to. Be shepherds of the church of God, the universal church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I think, sadly, there's Christian people out there who do not value the church of Jesus Christ and its position that it is to have within our lives. It's not our church. Remember, it was bought by the blood of Jesus. He made the atoning sacrifice to establish it. So we are to lead it, not to lord over it. We're to be shepherds of the sheep and feeders of the flock. So you've always got to ask yourself, can my shepherd protect the sheep and feed the flock? That's why I like to preach verse by verse, book by book. I think it gives everybody a a well-balanced nutritional diet in order to create a healthy body of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's about all the bells and whistles and the smoke machines and the uh, smoke and mirrors that go on in a lot of churches today. I think it's all about the solid word of God. When everything else passes away, that's all we're going to have left. So this passage touches on the importance of spiritual leadership, not lordship. We've always got to remember that this is the Lord's church. Yes, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is. He's the one that owns the church. We are just working for him. But every member is to be a minister. Every one of you is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just that some do it by vocation and others do it by volunteering great example of spiritual leadership best one ever isn't it he gets up from the table Jesus puts a towel around his waist and washes the disciples feet he led with a towel not a title verse 29 I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Be on your guard, Paul says. I can imagine him standing there with this authority. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So this is the... This is the first baton change, you understand, yeah? The first baton change was when Jesus ascended to heaven. 
Yeah? And he said to the apostles, here we go. The birth of the church. We're in the 21st century writing of the book of Acts. And we know that the, uh, the, the pure baton, the word of God, has to be passed on in all its entirety onto the next generation. And a time is coming when someone's going to hand that baton back to Jesus Christ when he comes again. Wow, I wish I could be there on that day. So Paul's hanging on to the baton. And he's telling church leaders, you need to guard this thing with your life. Paul knew the importance of this handover because we all know churches that have dropped the baton, don't we? We all know churches that are no more, churches that have watered down the word. Uh, somebody said to me last week, we're at a church, he was talking about football umpiring and never mentioned the Bible. And we see that more and more today. We're washing away the virgin birth, miracles and healings, the resurrection. Now, you don't believe in that, do you? And they're the very things that save us. And before you know it, you've got Mr. and Mr. leading the church. John Calvin writes this. The overseer needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and thieves. And you can identify the difference. So Paul was at this bat and change. You know, you've seen a relay race, haven't you? Yeah? The one who's holding on the bat and needs to hold onto it tight. The other one who's out in front, they are not looking back. They are looking forward. They've got the hand out. It's ready. And it's our responsibility to put that bat and that word of God firmly into the hands of the next generation so that they can continue to run this race until Jesus Christ comes again. So finally, to communicate Christian conduct, Paul encourages us to... It's been three weeks since I was up in the platform. I'm just getting wound up a little bit here. So I'm going for the record. Verse 35, uh, show up with help. We've got to show with help. Verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I told you about the uh, two guys that were out fishing one day. And a big swell came up and capsized the boat and the boat was sinking and they looked up and they swam to the only bit of land that they could see. They looked around, there was nothing. They were marooned on this desert island. Well, one guy was freaking out. He's running up and down the island screaming for help. He's writing help in the sand. He's gathering firewood. He's thinking about how he's going to make a fire. The other guy's just sitting back relaxing. He's got his shirt off, getting a few rays. I goes, help me, help me, or we're going to die on this island. The guy says, look, relax. He says, I make $100,000 a week, and I tithe to my church every week. My pastor will find me. <laughs> you show me where he is, and I'm off. Paul picked up an offering in Macedonia for the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. It was a severe famine in that area. And so the idea here is that if God has been generous to you, then we need to pour out the riches of God's grace that is given to us into the lives of others. You see, in New Testament times, the poor, the destitute, the sick, the widows, the orphans, the physically weak, they were discarded. There was no NDIS back then. You were left to fend for yourself. Maybe, maybe someone in your family might help you, but Christ made it Christian's responsibility to care. 
You know, in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus spoke of coming again to separate the sheep and the goats. This is what he wrote. Then the king, that's Christ, will come and say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. You know the verse, don't you? I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me, I was sick and you, and you helped look after me, I was in prison and you visited me. When did we do all this, they replied. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see, often we think in the judgment, it's the sheep, that's, ooh, that's us. And the goats, that's the unsaved. No, 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 the sheep and the goats are both those who think they are safe in Christ. Sheep look very much like goats when they're shorn. It's hard to tell the difference. But Christ is coming again to separate the faithful from the false. Folks, you can't earn your salvation. But if you help others, it's evidence of your salvation. Verse 32. Now I commit to you, uh, sorry, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of God. Heard a story about uh, Dr. David Livingston. He was the first to go to Africa uh, to win people through uh, Zimbabwe and whatnot. And when he went, he took 73 books from his library with him. Three big bags of books weighing about 100 kilos. After 500 kilometres of travel, seeing the fatigue on those who were carrying the, the books, he decided to lighten the load. As they continued on, he lightened the load a bit more. And he lightened the load a bit more until he only had one book left, the Bible. Church, the Bible is the only travel guide you will need to get your way safely home to heaven. And it's through that that we have this inheritance, that we're in God's will, that we're children of the Most High God. I love the way uh, sometimes when parents pass, children fight over the inheritance. I'm sure we've got a couple of lawyers in here this morning who can uh, say amen to that. It's like somehow we deserve it, isn't it? You know, Like we've done something for it, but we haven't. I like those little bumper stickers where the, uh, the parents have got, uh, we're, selling, we're, sending, we're, we're spending the kids' inheritance. That always makes me laugh. My brother were talking the other day, we're like, our yeah, kids are getting nothing. Nothing! In Christian love, of course, we're going to help them fend for themselves. <laughs> so you don't earn an inheritance, do you? But the inheritance we have from God is permanent. God, our heavenly Father. In 1 Peter 1, it says, An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept for you in heaven. You know, there's so much this world claims that is permanent, that is not permanent. The world itself isn't permanent. We're not permanent. We're only going to live here maybe 80 years if you're lucky. But heaven is as permanent as God himself and he has prepared a place for you. So the concluding verses, verse 36 to 38. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Let me ask you this. This is where we started. 
How do you expect people to react when you farewell them? Folks, I think you get back from others what you give. I think the amount of love that you give to others is the love that you receive. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Folks, what matters most in life really is what you leave behind when you depart to go to your inheritance in heaven. It's really about uh, what Paul leaves behind here are wise words to conduct ourselves as Christians. The importance of this book, the word of God, the importance of it being carried as we go forth in this church until Jesus Christ comes again. We've got to carry this baton on to what is the next generation of leaders within the church. We've got to put that word firmly in his hand until Jesus Christ comes again. Can you say amen? amen. And until then... God be with you. Why don't you stand with me as the worship team come back?